Uh, you know, last time we were together, we focused on uh, Jesus's public discourse uh, when he talked about the nature of unbelief right there at the end of chapter 12 in the, in the Gospel of John. And uh, as I said at the time, this brings uh, Jesus's public ministry to a close. And now we enter today into his farewell discourses uh, to his disciples. These uh, farewell discourses or speeches are um, also found in the Old Testament, if you just jog your memory and you think about that. Uh, Notable cases, for example, such as Jacob. You remember when he gathered his children right before he died in Genesis 47, and that stretched into chapter 49. Joshua to, uh, to Israel in chapters 22 to 24, the book of Joshua. David to Israel in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29. And Moses to Israel, basically the whole book of Deuteronomy could be categorized that way. And essentially, uh, these farewell discourses consist of a, a, a great man who gathers his followers or his children, in the case of Jacob, together on the eve of his death in order to give instruction uh, following their departure. And when you compare this account of Jesus' final days and his farewell discourse here with the synoptics, it's notable that uh, John uh, omits both the Olivet Discourse as well as the institution of the Lord's Supper. So if you're looking for that here in the Gospel of John, you don't find that. Uh, Instead, what you do find is the only, uh, here, the only gospel writer um, is, includes this narrative that we're going to look at this morning of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Interestingly, when you read the synoptic accounts, uh, rather than what happened here, you read the account of the Last Supper, and that's an important one too. And, but in addition to that, you see something else that is not mentioned here explicitly, and that is the dispute among the disciples as to which of them were the greatest and how Jesus rebuked them. It would be tempting to think that rather than record that same event here, John instead provides Jesus' rebuke by way of the foot-washing episode that we'll look at here, but that would be a little bit too simplistic of an explanation, and you'll see why as we go through it in the text. What Jesus does in the foot washing is significant, and uh, what I'm going to point out to you this morning is that it has more meaning than just the external act itself. As we'll unpack during today's discussion, that action of foot washing actually foreshadows the cross event itself, and thus is far more than just a lesson on humility. It certainly is that too, and we have much to learn from that, but there is a deeper meaning as well. It has to do, in fact, as we'll talk about today, with cleansing. Cleansing that only Jesus can bring through his atoning death, apart from which there can be no fellowship and no eternal life. Let me just take a moment to read our passage here this morning, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get out of here this morning. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, 
When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we unpack the word here this morning, we pray that your word would convict our hearts It would also draw us nearer to our Lord to pick up the the meaning of what he is saying here on so many different levels. Pray that your word would would cause us to draw near to Christ in a way that is deeper than when we came here this morning. So use this time now and use me as um, as the one communicating your word and to not get in the way of the message here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well... Let's uh, take a look here at verse 1. I'm having, oh, maybe I have to turn this on, huh? Is that, aha, how about that, huh? You got to turn this on. Okay, we're going to look at uh, uh, verse 1 in just a minute, but let me just tell you what we're going to do here this morning. The outline's pretty simple. We have the setting in verses 1 to 5, and we have the dialogue with Peter in verses 6 to 11. But let's, uh, let's start where we usually do at the beginning in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John says that this narrative takes place just before the Passover meal uh, was about to begin on Thursday evening. And he also specifies that the time for Christ's death has come. We're right in that last day before the crucifixion begins. And so we're right there. Jesus had said as much back in chapter 12, verse 23, when Jesus answered the disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so John wants the reader to understand that Jesus is not a victim of circumstance, but that he's very well aware of the Father's plan for him, and the time has now come to fulfill it. He was preparing to die and go back from whence he came, Because his his work would have been complete. Back to the Father who sent him. Back to the glory that he had in the presence of his Father before the world began. And in light of this fact, uh, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples in this farewell discourses for his pending death. So the narrative is pointing us to the cross event which will be the ultimate demonstration of Christ's love. But before we get there, that singularly great act of love will be symbolized in Jesus' humility 
to wash the feet of his disciples. Did you ever wonder why in the wisdom of God that uh, Jesus was chosen uh, to die during Passover? There are at least two, probably more, but there are at least two very good reasons for this uh, that we can discern. First, there's probably no greater type of Christ found in the Old Covenant than the Passover lamb. You know, when, when we refer to something as a type, we're talking about a person or an event or an institution that finds its correspondence or its fulfillment in the New Testament. So the, the Passover lamb in the Old Testament is going to look for fulfillment in the New Testament lamb, which is Jesus. Remember how John the Baptist introduced Jesus in chapter 1, verse 29, when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're meant to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Paschal Lamb at Passover. And so how appropriate for him to die at this time. Secondly, Jews that were scattered all over the face of the earth would have been present for the Passover. They would have been here. They would eventually return home and report all that they had seen concerning the passion and the resurrection of Jesus. Just a word, uh, by the way, just a word about the special love that Christ has for his own. Isn't it true that God loves the world? Yes, it is true. But he has a greater love for those who are his own, meaning those who are his disciples. You know, that's a hard truth uh, for many to hear. But, you know, the Bible does not teach that God loves all people the same indiscriminately. That's not a biblical truth. But he has a special love for his own. So this comment has special relevance for his elect, whom he, as he says here, loved to the end. This has the idea of loving them to the utmost or loving them to the fullest extent. Now, that's quite a comment especially in light of the fact that these same disciples are going to cowardly forsake him in the very near future when the persecution against Jesus uh, will be at its all-time hottest. And yet it didn't affect his unconditional love for them. Let me ask you a question. You know, would you love someone to the fullest if you knew ahead of time that they wouldn't love you back at the moment that you would need it the most. Would you still love them to the, to the fullest? A lot of us would not. And it's a good reminder that Jesus never rejects us because of our failures. You know, if you belong to Jesus here this morning, you will always belong to Jesus and he will always love you. Jesus said this back in chapter six of the same gospel, verse 37. All that the father gives me will come to me, and this is the important part, and whoever comes to me, I will never, what's the rest of it, cast out. So Jesus' love, thank God, is greater than our failures. Again, Jesus' love for them will be foreshadowed in the act of foot washing that will then culminate in the cross. And this, will become, this point will become clearer as we progress in the narrative. But as Jesus said earlier in chapter 10, verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, 
and I lay down my life for the sheep. And that event is about to take place. In verses 2 to 3, we read there, During supper, when the, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come back from God and was going back to God. Now, I realize that we're stopping right in the middle of a sentence here, but I think it's worth pondering before we finish that thought, the significance of what's about to take place. John wants the reader to know that everything he's about to describe is taking place at the, uh, just as the evening meal is being served. Now, almost as an aside, John mentions that Satan is the mastermind behind Judas's betrayal. This idea to betray Jesus, um, though not rejected by Judas, was not original to him either. The whole plot against Jesus to get him to the cross is satanically inspired. And then it's entertained in Judas's heart. So as you read that, let me ask, was Judas responsible for his own actions or did the devil make him do it? Well, let's think about this. Yes, he was still responsible for his own actions uh, because, you know, contrary to popular opinion, Satan cannot force anyone to do something they don't want to do against their will. Uh, you know, I liken it to, you know, having a friend uh, who is a bad influence on you. He constantly comes up with bad ideas that will get you into trouble, and yet you eventually go along with it. Maybe you had friends like that. Maybe you were that friend, you know. Looking around, I, I could tell some of you were that friend, you know, but... Uh, you, you could have rejected it, right? You could have rejected it, but you didn't, and then you got yourself into trouble. Now, could you blame your friend? Oops. Could you then blame your friend and then avoid responsibility for your actions? Oh, you know, I, I didn't, so-and-so made me do it. He made me do it, right? No, you were both in on it, whether you were instigator or follower, and though he may have persuaded you to do what you did, you still must own your own decision for your participation. That's the same here. The devil put the idea to betray Jesus in Judas's heart, and Judas took that, he entertained it here, and then he ran with it. Judas had a heart that was inspired by the devil and willed what the devil willed. And we see here the intimate connection between them that has started. But, you know, this is not the first time that this relationship between Judas and the devil has been alluded to. Back in John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus had said this to his disciples. He said, uh, and you can imagine how they must have taken this at the time. He says, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. You know, kind of looking around like, uh, you know, talking about him and me, you know. Now, again, ultimately, the responsibility is on Judas, not Satan, because at the end of the day, he betrayed Jesus because he loved money more than he loved Jesus. And he loved um, 
money more than he even loved his own soul. So, you know, Christian, beware of how Satan works. He seeks to influence you through the power of suggestion, uh, tempting you to do evil. You know, we can either reject this temptation or we can open our hearts wide to the suggestion. We can sit on it, cogitate about it, entertain it, and then let itself, let that whole idea embed itself here in our hearts. Now we are walking in step with the devil's will. You know, the battleground in our fight against the devil is right here in our minds. This is where the battle takes place. Remember Peter's warning in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 9? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What's the solution in verse 9? Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, this is the devil's ministry, and in Judas's case, he devoured him. But thankfully, as believers, we can successfully resist his attacks against us, but that's never in our own strength. But we can only do it, as Peter talks about here in 1 Peter 5, we can only do it firm in our faith, trusting him for the victory rather than ourselves. That might you know, provoke a question in your own mind. You know, can a genuine born-again believer uh, be demon-possessed? The, the simple answer to that question is, no, he cannot. They, they, can, they can be attacked, as we just discussed, but that's very different than being possessed or the terminology that the Bible uses to be demonized. A Christian cannot be demonized. Because at the moment of salvation, they are saved by Christ, and they are then indwelt by the Holy Spirit, rendering it impossible to be indwelt simultaneously by demons. Non-Christians, however, just like Judas, can be demon-possessed as they yield their will to his. You know, if you aren't a believer, and you're with us here this morning, and all of this sounds kind of crazy, it sounds mythical, right? It sounds marvelous superstitious, right? Well, let me make this uh, unambiguously clear so that there's no misunderstanding here this morning. The Bible teaches that there is a literal devil and that he leads an army of fallen angels known as demons. They were originally created by uh, God as good, but at some point in the past, a past the theologians uh, debate, Satan rebelled and took a third of the angels with him and these are the ones known as demons in the scripture. They wage war against God and his people, but they are in no way equal to him. They're subordinate to him. They don't hold a candle to his power. And one day, Satan and all of his army will be judged and sentenced to an eternity in hell, the very place that was created for them in the first place. Well, getting back to Judas, despite Satan's schemes, our God is still sovereign. Though Satan conspires with Judas to get Jesus to the cross, ultimately, this was God's plan all along. 
As Acts 2.23 states, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There you can see human responsibility. You crucified him. But that do, and that doesn't let you off the hook. Oh, but, but oh, by the way, this was all predetermined by God. God is sovereign, and yet you did what you most wanted to do in killing the Messiah. Satan and Judas did what they most wanted to do, and yet were unwittingly fulfilling God's sovereign plan. So before we begin to talk about the details of the foot washing, keep in mind that Judas, the betrayer, is one of the men whose feet Jesus would wash. Remember what Jesus said in, in Luke 6, 27? But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Jesus didn't just say these kinds of things. He lived them out, and he left behind examples for us to follow. Jesus is about to wash the feet of the man who, in concert with Satan, is about to betray him. One other related point to keep in mind, Jesus already mentioned that he knew that he had special knowledge of the Father's will there in verse 1. But he adds to that affirmation both that he had come from God and that the Father had given all things into his hands. Now why is that important? Because John wants us to focus on the absolute sovereign power of Jesus. And yet despite all of that, power, authority, unlimited, he's about to wash his disciples' feet. Oh, and by the way, and then go to the cross right after. We're meant to see the contrast between his infinite power and his infinite condescension and his love towards his disciples. As uh, Clink in his commentary has pointed out, God is not loving but powerless, or powerful but unloving. He is simultaneously both. So true. Full of power, Jesus was, and full of love as well. Jesus also knew that he needed to be obedient to the Father's plan for him. He never loses sight of this fact. So we're supposed to see the connection that what is about to take place is because not Jesus is a victim of circumstance, but Jesus knew who he was. He knew who he was. So Jesus is not acting from a position of weakness. Oh, I better just do it because I have no choice. But he possessed unlimited divine power, and yet instead of destroying his enemies, he's going to wash his disciples' feet, including Judas. So he rose from supper. Verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this is where things start to get interesting. We have to understand about the culture of Jesus' day and how all of this would have been perceived. You know, think about all the walking that people did in those days. They, they walked across dusty roads. And you remember, they didn't have Nikes in those days, right? They wore the open-toed, uh, you know, open-toed sandals without any socks, right? And so you can imagine just how dirty and grimy 
your feet would become, you know, walking miles a day. And that's why part and parcel of hospitality consisted of foot washing water to be available when guests arrived at the house. Now, this isn't just so that you won't dirty the floor. It has direct relevance when you eat your meal. Because in those days, as you recall, people didn't, you know, sit like this and, and eat the way that we do today, but they reclined at a short table, kind of like those Korean tables that we bust out, you know, when we, we go to people's homes. They would sit at the, the, the low table and you would recline, usually on your left side with your, your left elbow, and uh, you would eat like this. Well, guess what's sticking out as you're reclining? In the next guy's face, your feet, right? Uh, and so if you didn't wash your feet, do you want to be eating your meal and going, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to smell this and eat this, you know? Um, you can imagine how that would spoil a person's meal. Well, you know, foot washing was normally performed by the lowliest of slaves, not usually by peers towards one another. It could happen in rare circumstances, but it was very rare. In fact, what's interesting is that even Jewish slaves were not to be used for this low, lowly service. You would use a Gentile slave, but not even a Jewish slave could be demeaned in this way. In fact, in many Greco-Roman texts, foot washing is so closely equated with slavery that the term is actually used as a synonym for slavery. Well, in the scene before us, the fact that the disciples are already eating with unwashed feet, that is very unusual. You're supposed to, if you're reading this, you're supposed to catch that. That's weird. There's something funny going on here. And so it's telling us something. No one felt they were lowly enough to wash the feet of their peers, nor did they feel that they should even wash the feet of their master, Jesus. None of them considered themselves lowly enough to do that. You know, disciples often served their masters in many ways in that culture, but they were never required to wash their master's feet. So understand, this refusal to wash each other's feet, it's, it's less about arrogance and it's more about social etiquette as it was understood in that day. Yet having said that, it was etiquette that was rooted in prideful social class distinction. So in any case, you can imagine the utter shock they must have felt when they saw Jesus take the initiative to fulfill the role of a lowly slave. You know, even the details that John provides for us paints this picture so vividly. By taking off his outer garment and then tying a towel around his waist, it would have went from his shoulder around his waist. Jesus, if you had saw him and you were sitting there looking, he would be indiscernible from a lowly slave. Now, this would have been frowned upon by both Jews and Gentiles. And the disciples were probably stunned at this course of events, not to, not to mention probably a little bit embarrassed as Jesus is about to do something for them that they should have done for him. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the message, the Synoptic Gospels don't record the foot washing uh, event itself, but it does describe the conversation that takes place. And as I mentioned earlier, it was about which of us 
would be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus' humility to serve his disciples would effectively rebuke this arrogant attitude that we already see present in the other Gospels. Their Messiah, their King, God come in the flesh, had humbled himself and become their, their slave, their servant. So Jesus knew full well who he was when he washed his disciples' feet. By the way, did you know that when you search through extant Jewish and Greco-Roman sources of that day, you know how many instances you find of a superior washing an inferior's feet? You know how many you find? Zero. There is no instances of this ever happening. But as we'll find out, Jesus has a bigger purpose than just what can be seen on the surface. Yes, what Jesus does is done out of love. No question about it. Um, but it's also symbolic of the need for cleansing. And not to mention the fact that it will also serve as an example for the disciples to follow. There's a lot going on here in the foot washing episode. With all of that said, Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet. You know, it's hard not to think of Philippians 2, 5 to 8, as we read this, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, our Lord left for us an example that ought to be taken seriously. Humble servanthood is the essence of godliness. You know, we should never feel as if anything is beneath us, as if there is something just too menial for us. You might think of yourself as too good to serve. You know, I, I would love to go to Baja, but it's just, it's just too dirty. It's too grimy. It's, it gets my hands dirty. You know, it's, it's in a, you know, a situation that I just don't feel comfortable with. I would do VBS, but there are other people who could do VBS, you know, because it's just, it's beneath me. I don't want to mess around with little kids all, all week, drive me nuts, be tired all week, you know, or whatever. Um, I'm just too good for that, you know. I'm too good to associate with lower class people, so there's certain things I can and can't do as far as my service is concerned. And, you know, if that describes you here this morning, well, let Christ's example be a rebuke to you. As we mentioned earlier, the foot washing foreshadows and culminates in the cross event that is just around the corner. Now, how is that? How is that the case? Well, it pictures Christ's humiliating death on the cross as the means by which our spiritual cleansing is going to be made. And we'll talk about that again as we go on. Verses 6 to 7. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. <laughs> you can imagine the horror, the embarrassment that the disciples must have felt when Jesus began washing their feet. In fact, you don't hear anything that the disciples said until Jesus gets to Peter. Because they're all probably stunned, shocked in silence. 
But when he got to Peter, Peter was flabbergasted at the thought of Jesus washing his feet. And so he speaks up for the first time. And the Greek displays Peter's shock. And this is how it reads in the Greek text. You, my, washing the feet? It, it wasn't just the kind of service that Jesus was rendering and how it violated cultural norms. It was also that fa- the fact that you, the master, are washing me, the servant, my feet. It's similar to John the Baptist's response when Jesus came to him to be baptized. You remember that in Matthew three fourteen. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? There's a role reversal here that that feels uncomfortable, right? And Jesus answers Peter's objection by pointing out that what he's about to do won't be fully understood until after. Literally, it's after these things, probably referring to the future events of his passion. So considering the fact that Jesus ends up explaining The significance of him washing the disciples' feet in the same narrative, we'll look at that part next week, there is some sense in which they would understand immediately some things, but the full meaning of what he did wouldn't be revealed until after the resurrection. And then all of this stuff would really be seen in its fullness. So in other words, even though it doesn't make sense to Peter right now as this event is taking place in real time, It will, once it's all over. So Jesus' words don't provide any resolution, though, for Peter, as we see in his response. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter's response to Jesus is made uh, emphatic by the strongest possible negation when he says you shall never wash my feet he means you will never wash my feet so long as the world exists forever unto eternity you will never wash my feet the thought that jesus would carry out such a lowly degrading act was truly distasteful to peter but that doesn't mean that peter or any of the other disciples for that matter were willing to do it for each other Like, oh, I'll do it next, Jesus. You know, you don't see that, right? Even if any of the other disciples would have volunteered, you got to understand, that would have likewise been distasteful to Peter because of the social custom being violated even more so that it's Jesus. But Peter is a rather complicated individual, isn't he? He's humble enough to see Jesus' superiority over himself, and yet he's proud enough to tell Jesus what to do. Don't serve me at all, Jesus. Jesus served me even more. I want my whole body bathed, right? Jesus' response back to Peter was even stronger than Peter's. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You know, the idea of having a share, that has to do with an inheritance. And in some contexts can refer to the eschatological blessings at the end of the age. In other words, inheriting the kingdom. Eternity, right? So Peter hears Jesus saying, this is what Peter hears, that if he doesn't allow Jesus to wash his feet, he'll have no future blessing to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. 
Peter now learns that you should never say never. As he backpedals, realizing that he spoke too hastily, so what does he do? He goes in the exact opposite direction, right? If I have no inheritance with Jesus, if I don't let him wash my feet, then the only solution is give me a whole bath. Wash me completely. Now, as we say all this, it should be obvious by now that Jesus is concerned with more than just foot washing. The word wash is going to have two meanings throughout this passage, oscillating back and forth between the actual washing of feet and the spiritual washing away of sin that only Jesus can accomplish. Take, for example, this passage. Peter objects to Jesus washing his feet, but Jesus is referring to the washing away of his sin. And so unless Jesus washes away Peter's sin, he cannot have any inheritance with Jesus. And Jesus will continue using wash in this metaphorical way. So Peter thinks Jesus is talking about the actual foot washing, but Jesus is really talking about spiritually being washed. And so Peter has totally missed the point, and that's why he's going back and forth in two different extremes. But as you hear me this morning, I, I hope you don't miss the point. Unless Jesus washes away your sin, there is no hope for you. There is no other Savior. There is no other means to wash away your sin. Nothing within yourself to earn God's favor. This is it. This is all there is. You either get washed clean by Jesus or you will forever remain stained from your sin and you will never have a place in God's future kingdom. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Most likely the scenario that, uh, that Jesus is picturing uh, is the man uh, who before go, going to a dinner will bathe himself at home, right? He'll do the necessary preparations. He'll clean himself up real well. But then the problem is once he's all clean, puts on his sandals, and he goes out the door, and what's outside his door waiting for him? All kinds of dirt and uncleanness, right? Dust, you know? And so by the time he arrives at the destination, he's clean, right? He just took a bath, except for his feet. His feet are all dirty once again, and he would once again need to wash his feet. But, so you can understand Jesus' illustration, but again, Jesus is still speaking metaphorically of spiritual cleansing. So the one who has been bathed represents the one who has been washed clean of all of his sins by Jesus, the one who has received forgiveness, right? This is emphasized, by the way, by the perfect tense that is used here, indicating that this bath has already taken place in the past because of Peter's relationship to Jesus. And so he stands before Jesus completely clean in the present. He's completely clean. 
But even though Jesus hasn't completed his work of redemption on the cross, that's still another day away, the application of that certain event can already be talked about as true. It's, it hasn't happened, but it's almost as if it has happened. Peter is already clean. Jesus' comment was brought about by Peter's exclamation, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus is telling Peter he doesn't need the full bath because he's already been washed clean. But notice he makes an exception. Except for your feet. You're all clean except for your feet. Why this exception? Well, the washing of the feet, that represents the believer's life after he's been initially washed clean from his sins at salvation. He's had a spiritual bath, so to speak, right? He is completely clean as a result. And that's a cleansing, by the way, for every one of us who have put our faith in Christ, that we have casted all our cares upon him, we've surrendered our life to him. We were justified at that moment for all of our sins, past, present, and future. But, just like in the case with Peter, as he walks through the dirty roads of this life, his feet will get dirty. Our feet will get dirty. And we will need to wash our feet. That's a picture of the Christian life. As believers go through the sinful world, they had their sins wiped clean in Jesus when they came to faith, but they still fall into sin every single day. And that sin defiles all of us. Relationally, it breaks fellowship with our Lord. And subsequently, those sins need to be confessed and they need to be cleansed. We need to wash our feet, right? And so when a believer sins, he doesn't lose his salvation. He doesn't need then to get saved all over again. If you believe that, you're going to have, you know, literally thousands, if not millions, of um, confessions of, uh, you know, uh, prayers of confession to be saved, right? Because you lose your salvation, you gain it, you lose it, you gain it, you lose it, you gain it. Um, but that's not how it works. He does need, by the way, to ask God for forgiveness in order for his relationship with him to be restored. That's the same idea that we find in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is speaking of the relational aspect between us and God so that we can enjoy unbroken fellowship with him. Well, you know, the foot washing represents the post-salvation cleansing from sin that every believer needs. A professing believer that neglects the daily washing of his feet, meaning the confessing of his sins and receiving Christ's forgiveness and cleansing may not really be a believer after all because this is indicative of the, of the Christian life. Jesus affirms to his disciples that they are spiritually clean, that they are in a right relationship with him, except one, Judas. John wants his readers to know that Jesus was in full control of the situation and that he was fully aware that Judas was going to betray him. So Jesus didn't go to the cross on accident. He wasn't a victim of momentum and thus taken by surprise. He knew exactly what it was that he was doing. There was intention. 
Judas, like the other disciples, would have his feet washed, but make no mistake, he was not washed clean from his sin, but he was as filthy as a person could ever be. But you know, there are lessons to learn from Judas's life. First, Judas was the recipient of immense spiritual privilege. He was chosen by Jesus as one of the 12 apostles. He walked with him for three years. He experienced his love firsthand. He heard all the sermons. He saw all the miracles. And people forget this one. He even performed miracles himself in Jesus' name. Yet with all that privilege, he ended up demon-possessed and the one who would forever be known as the one who betrayed Jesus. You know, Christian privilege doesn't guarantee you anything unless you have a heart affected by grace, ready to appreciate it and then to do something with it. Some of you young people in this room here this morning are the recipients of immense Christian privilege. You have the benefit of growing up in a Christian family. You've heard the gospel on many occasions since the time you could understand and you've grown up in a Bible-believing church that taught you the truth about God and the gospel. It's immense Christian privilege that many people don't ever have. But just hearing, singing, and knowing things about Christ, that ain't going to save you. You might even be able to carry on a decent conversation about Christian things, but that doesn't prove anything. As J.C. Ryle reminds us, Privileges alone, without grace, save nobody and will only make hell deeper. If this describes you here this morning, I urge you to examine yourself to see whether your faith is genuine or whether you're a closet Judas here this morning. You certainly don't have to be, but you need to be real about where you stand. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Have you really repented of your sins to trust Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? in order to receive the gift of eternal life? Have you really bowed the need to Jesus to be the Lord of your life? Or is the world and its attraction still the most important thing in your life? Only you and God know the answer to that question. Jesus' act of foot washing, as we've been saying all morning, is rich with symbolism. He humbled himself in washing his disciples' feet in order to foreshadow his humiliating death on the cross in order to wash away their sins. And he will wash away anyone's sins who comes to him in repentance and faith on his terms. Next week, as we, as we pick up here uh, in verse 12, we will start to see more of Jesus' explanation and wrap up the conversation about the significance of Jesus and his foot washing. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks as we uh, spend time this morning looking at the significance of the act of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. 
Father, as we see this, let it humble us in more ways than one. Humble us to see what, uh, what our Savior, what our Master, what our King did on our behalf to humble himself and humiliate himself on a cross so that we could have eternal life. But also let it humble us towards each other, us who are far less than a, than a king, than a master, and a lord, and a savior, to serve each other in our world and never think that anything is beneath us. Thank you, Father. We give you thanks and praise for this. In Jesus' name, amen.